welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and as usual, it's a great pleasure to have your company. Now, after last week's podcast on missing children in Europe, we've had a terrific response, and I think you'll agree that today and the subject we've chosen, you're going to hopefully have the same kind of response because it is really, really important, serious, and I think underknown about. So I'm delighted that my guest today is Sonia Chowdhury, who's the chief executive of the United Kingdom charity Action for ME, Myalgic Encephaloma Myelitis. And um, Sonia, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you, David. Okay. So look, I, I, I think for loyal listeners to the podcast, they'll remember maybe that six years ago you were on the programme and we talked then about the challenges that you found and you were fairly new to the charity then uh, leading it. So um, what are the challenges six years on? Are they any different? Are they bigger? Uh, I mean, exact, could you just outline some of the things for us? Yes. Uh, So many of the challenges are the same. They have changed in some ways. We're still seeing the inequality of sleep experienced by children and adults with myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as ME and sometimes unhelpfully called chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. We are seeing people not getting access to the support and care that they have a right to. We're still seeing people, parents being accused of child protection wrongly because doctors and others don't understand the illness. We're seeing people missing, hidden away, too ill to be able to go out, too ill to be able to, to socialise. Many people uh, will, will identify with the pandemic and lockdown. People with ME have been in lockdown sometimes for decades and are unseen and invisible to the wider world. Those things still exist, but we are seeing a change in terms of understanding. We are seeing increased collaboration and we are about to see a change in the guidelines recommended for doctors in terms of supporting people with ME. It does sound, uh, towards the end there of what you said, towards the beginning, obviously, I could see the challenges in some respects were still as raw as ever. But towards the end, there, you were expressing some optimism. Um, it, could you just say a little bit about some of the effects of ME on people's lives? Because it, it can be quite varied, can't it? It can. It can affect anyone at any time. And we know that there are over 250,000 people in the UK with ME, over 30 million worldwide. It can affect people in lots of different ways with um, some people experiencing pain and others not. It can, People have something called brain fog or dis, uh, cognitive dysfunction, post-exertional malaise where people, uh, their bodies don't recover even after the smallest amount of exertion, whether that's physical or um, cognitive. People have hypersensitivity to light, to sound, sometimes even to touch. So could you imagine being so ill that your parents can't come into your room and give you a cuddle? It's a neurological disease. It can affect anybody of any age, of any gender, any ethnicity. And what we see and what we hear from children and adults is that isolation is the biggest thing that they experience, aside from all the horrible physical um, disease-related symptoms. 
Right. They feel um, alien in some respects too, I suspect, and kind of you know, shut off from a lot of kind of the community. Do you, I mean, there's, there's definitely not enough resources. There's definitely not enough research. But, I mean, uh, let's start with anything good. I, I, you mentioned some things there that you think were positive steps. Do you want to just elaborate on that a little bit? And then we'll get to the other really challenging bits later. Yes, I think that the focus on long COVID that we've seen in the press and media has been helpful. It's shone a light on post-viral illnesses like ME, and we've certainly seen a, a massive increase in interest in ME and the overlapping symptoms that we're seeing with long COVID. So that profile raising, media coverage, press coverage is fantastic. That means people start to understand what it's like to live with ME and to start seeing the, the, the tragic situation that many people find themselves in. We, uh, the NICE guideline, which is the clinical guidelines for doctors, has been revised and we heard today that the revised guideline is going to be published imminently. And that was the result of three years of work, a very robust process that NICE used to develop that guideline with the patients um, and public involvement, carers' involvement within that committee. So that's a really positive step forward. They have reviewed all the evidence base of which there is little to look at what treatments should or should not be offered to people. So we very much welcome the, the news that that is about to be published. And we will work collaboratively across the different ME charities and with NICE and with doctors to make sure that that guideline is implemented so that when people go and see their doctor, their doctor not only knows what ME is, they can turn to the guideline and use that to ensure that harmful treatments aren't provided to their patients. That was a very nice kind of flow. Uh, in, it's, it's a brilliant thing happening, and I hope it does happen. Um, and it flows nicely, like I said, into the next question I was going to ask you anyway, which essentially was, well, let's talk a little bit then about resource gaps um, and ways of actually assisting people living with ME much better than they are being assisted at the moment. So starting local, that's what I was going to ask you. And then you talked about the GPs there. So would there be any other local things that should be um, being enacted now, whether it's support groups or or just education campaigns or information, whatever, things like that? There's lots that can be done. There are some peer support groups and often those are run by people who are very ill. And so we see them sometimes being, you know, quite popular and, and doing quite a lot. And other times people are having to, to close the support groups because they're just not ill and they're just not well enough terrible, to keep them going. It? Yeah. it is, yeah. you know, and, and that support is so vital. We know that the thing that can make a really big difference is letting people know that they're not alone. If isolation is the biggest thing that children and adults with ME tell us, uh, is, you know, is a problem, then every single person listening to this program could, if they hear of somebody or know of somebody with ME, just send a text, just check in. That actually makes a huge difference to, to, to people and to show a level of understanding. When somebody says, I've got cancer, we all have an image of what that might be. It may be, um, you know, the loss or potential threat of um, death or, um, you know, the impact of treatment. Um, we all have that image. When you say, 
uh, I've got ME, people often go, oh, what's that? Is it that tired thing? Is it, you know, I knew somebody with ME, but then I never saw them again. And that's because they are so ill. Often people with ME are at home alone. So just demonstrating that understanding can make a significant difference. Okay. At the, the same time, we know that social care often is not in place. Of, um, of over 4,000 people that we um, that responded to our survey a couple of years ago, nine, I think it was something like 94 or 96% of people on paper looked as though they were entitled to social care support, yet only 6% of them had even had um, an assessment. So I think there are lots of things that can happen at, at local level yeah. to improve access yeah. to services. That's no, that, that's that's helpful. I mean, uh, I, I would have, I would have wondered though whether you were even going to go as far as to actually sort of say put um me trained staff whether they're kind of i don't know not paramedic but i mean whatever somewhere on the spectrum uh, into the local community you know health centers and so forth to actually kind of uh, engage the those in the local community that are have uh, have got uh, me well, it's interesting you should say that because we are in the process of merging with a smaller ME charity that provides holistic um, health and wellbeing support to people with ME through doctors, multi-phase chaplaincy, counselling, etc. Mm -hmm. And so what we would like to see is that every person with ME has access to a doctor or a nurse that understands what ME is, the impact that it can have and that they can access that at the, at the time that they need it. That is just not happening. And we've become so frustrated that, you know, in the last six years, we've not seen that change, that we're actually going to deliver that ourselves. So I definitely think that um, healthcare and specialist ME trained individuals to support people mm -hmm. with ME is, is a huge need. And we should see that at a very local level. And I guess you've got far too much money. You don't want anybody to send you any, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if only if only that were true, David. Uh, it, there's a def there's a def desperate need. We're a 1.2 million charity, and we are spread so thin that our advocacy service has a six months waiting list, and we've had to close that waiting list. And we're talking about people who are so severely affected that they're unable to advocate for themselves and are being left in very dire situations without any support or care and um you know that is having a huge impact on individuals and, and i'm ashamed to say that we've had to shut our waiting list that's simply not good enough so funding to continue our support services whilst we're always whilst we're also advocating for change is really critical mm. no i mean and obviously on the front page of this uh, podcast is um all your contact details, including, you know, the Action for ME website, actionforme.org.uk. So, I mean, it'll all be there for people if they want to follow this up, which I encourage them to do, because it is really one of these subjects and one of these conditions that effectively, you know, seems always to be under the radar. And I, I've never really fully understood why, but there we are. Okay, now, Sonia, you're a busy woman because also apart from anything else that you're doing, you chair the World ME Alliance. And, and we just heard from you, you're saying there's about 30 million people who've been diagnosed with ME around the world. Um, yeah. What does that involve? I mean, I, I know you told me earlier that you, the focus really is in lobbying the World Health Organization to get full recognition for ME. 
Um, obviously, that's a um, continuing thing, if, it's, uh, if that's the way you put it. Is that fair? Yes, that, that's correct. So we co-founded the Alliance uh, a, f- a few years ago, probably five years ago, to increase coordination and collaboration between national patient support charities. And what we really wanted to do was to get that recognition at World Health Organization level. As you said, ME has been under the radar for decades, and that's simply not good enough when over 30 million people worldwide are affected by it. In in some ways, and I, I hasten, to, uh, you know, I struggle to say this, but in some ways, people in the UK are lucky in inverted commas because at least there is some level of recognition. There are many countries around the world where ME is not recognised and people are told that they're malingerers or that there's nothing wrong with them or that it's all in their head. And so they are getting nothing, no support, no recognition. And what we want to do through the World ME Alliance is to work together collaboratively to to create that change so that every single child or adult with ME is seen as having a recognisable disease and that they get the support that they need. Fair enough. Okay. Now, I did mention earlier to you, um, because you you obviously are very strongly kind of pushing the idea of isolation being the most serious problem or certainly up there with the most serious problems that affects people with ME. But at the same time, um, you, you were talking that workshops are available, that there are kind of, if you like, buddy programs. There is this pen pal arrangement you talked about that would certainly be terrific that if that's helping a lot you said with people being isolated um to say a little bit of that about these initiatives would you yep so we offer online forums we have one for adults and one for children and young people and they're moderated by peers so we support older young people to to act as moderators often they're out of school and and don't have the skills to go on applications and CVs, those kinds of things, once they are well enough to to be able to to go into education, into the workplace. We we do run what we call breaking isolation workshops for children and young people. And children and young people tell us that they they have no contact often with their peers because they're not in school and they're not well enough to have people visiting. So the Breaking Isolation workshops offer them an opportunity to be alongside other young people. They're designed by the young people and often involve craft activities and things that kids, children, young people would naturally do, but they don't have the opportunity to do so. We have a, for children, young people, a pen pal and buddy scheme. And so um, children, young people through us can write to each other. And we also ensure that every child or young person in our service gets a birthday card from another child or young person, because often that's missing again because they're not in school. Mm. Mm. No, thank you. Yeah, good things. Okay, so... You talked there on the international level about lobbying the World Health Organization uh, to get more global recognition of uh, ME. But what about our government in the UK? Um, what, what kind of contacts do you have with them and or the alliance perhaps has with them? I don't know. Is it positive? Are you getting places? Uh, It's an interesting question. I think we have worked behind the scenes for years to 
secure an increase in research funding. And that has included with the Medical Research Council and the Nas National Institute for Health Research, so the MRC and NIHR. And after many years of working together alongside them, we did see £3.2 million for a genetic study with 20,000 people with ME. And that is called the Decode ME study. You can find out about that online. There's lots of information there. And we're encouraging people to sign up to get updates and so that when we launch recruitment uh, later on um, in the next few months, then people can be first in line to participate. But that 3.2 million is a drop in the ocean and we really need to see more. So we have those positive relationships. We do engage very positively with the Department of Health and with NICE about the recent, um, about the, the revised guideline. But we are not seeing enough funding come through. And what we have said since the beginning of the pandemic, I think the Sun reported it in May or June last year as, um, and quoted me, a, a tsunami of post-viral illnesses, which we now call long COVID, as a result of um, illness, you know, the, the COVID pandemic. And That's impacted on people. you, hasn't it? Um, do, you want, do you want to say a bit about that? Because I, I was fascinated and hadn't realised before the impact. Could, could you elaborate a bit? Yeah, we've um, so we have seen an increase in people accessing or wanting to access our service, which has partly led to us having to shut waiting lists. And that's certainly for advocacy. And that is because a number of people with COVID, long COVID, not all, but a number of people are seeing overlapping symptoms. So what's known as post-exertional malaise, a flare-up of symptoms and a lack of recovery after even the smallest amount of um, energy use, seeing brain fog, some are experiencing pain, some are experiencing hypersensitivity. So those overlapping symptoms, because long COVID is a post-viral illness, like ME is for, for many people, we are starting to see an increase in demand for our services. We're also seeing a number of people who are um, either being diagnosed with ME or think they have ME but can't get a diagnosis because they've been diagnosed with long COVID and doctors are not sure what to do and, and, and what to diagnose. So that has put our information and support service under considerable pressure. We are anybody who has ME-like symptoms or is a friend or family member can access our services and they can do that by picking up the phone by emailing us sometimes you know even we get uh, messages from people by text and we will respond to everybody for that initial kind of information and report How, i mean what's being done to kind of if you like unravel that knot um you know because it, it, you know obviously on, on the medical side, you know, to, to find ways to sort of diagnostically separate um, is the goal, I would imagine. But uh, on the other hand, you know, you, you can't field everything. So, I mean, how is it being unraveled at the moment? I'm not sure it is at the moment. I think we're starting to see those conversations happening at sort of, you know, within government bodies, we know that there has been substantial amounts of money found for long COVID research, 
what we are calling for is that by putting a bit extra, our medical advisor, Dr. David Strain, he's, you know, very senior roles with the British Medical Association, etc., and been involved in long COVID task force and, and so forth. What he says is he's just uh, part of a team that have been awarded £6.8 million for long COVID research. And what he says is you put another million in and I can study post-viral illnesses like ME. So this funding could benefit other post-viral illnesses. And we are not seeing that opportunity taken up. We have got the greatest scientific opportunity to better understand post-viral illnesses sadly, because of, the, the, because of what we're seeing with long COVID. And that opportunity is not being taken up. And that's an absolute travesty. So we want equity for people with ME and, and post-viral illnesses. We want that funding put in by the, the government. We, do, we are receiving funding for a priority setting partnership, and that's a partnership between people with ME carers, the charities and um, clinicians mm. to identify the top 10 research priorities. And we unusually have received money from the research funders to do that piece of work. And therefore, we want governments to put their money where their mouth is and to fund programmes to, you know, to start to unravel the knots of those top 10 priority areas. That work will conclude in, in March next year. So we are working as hard as we can to make sure that that opportunity is not lost. What kind of coalition have you? Uh, you know, colleague, colleague agents, colleague, you know, charities, agencies, kind of networks, etc. I mean, are, are you, you know, I, I can't imagine you're not getting some pretty good support. So we, uh, within the ME charities, it's a group called Forward ME, and uh, we all work together collaboratively, and that's a really effective group to make sure that we are united and speak with one voice. It's not helpful if we have opposing voices as a community. So we work at a sort of UK level uh, around that and, and work to, together. We do, we are part of other forums, so Disability Benefits Consortium, um, etc. And but that that in of itself has not seen the benefit for people with ME specifically, but they've been fantastic for uh, for, for things safe for benefits. But what we um, what we are lacking is other illness areas working with us to secure equality for, for people with ME. So we are looking at how we can work with other post-viral illness groups. And I would love to hear if there's anybody out there that's listening that is supporting a post-viral illness where there are overlapping symptoms with ME, then we absolutely want to work together because there is mutual benefit and the, the, the more organisations work together, the bigger the coalitions, the, the stronger the, the voice. And we've seen that. We're part of the Long COVID Alliance, which is led by one of our strategic partners, Solvin states that that alliance now has over 600 members and it has a really strong powerful voice and we need to see that specifically for people with me Fine. sounds quite strong okay look, there's there's about five minutes left um sonia i just think let's um i mean there's so many other things we could talk about strategically you know um or, or, or whatever in terms of lobbying or in terms of fundraising whatever Details of, of, of everything that Action Premier is doing is, is on the front page, okay? So there we are. But for the last few minutes, do you think you could just say a little bit about, to some people that might be listening, who, who, who knows, who might have 
themselves or family members or whatever, the beginnings of, of concern or whatever, you know, not understanding what might be wrong with them. Um, and, um, you know, they, well, who knows what kind of um, diagnosis they might get early on. I, I'm not sure. But you just say a little bit to people listening and then sort of finally make sure people know how to get in touch with uh, Action for ME. Yes, so if, if you have ME or concerned that you have ME or maybe are a family member or even a friend or an employer with um, somebody with ME, then you can go to our website. We have a huge range of resources outlining what ME is, what impact it has, what support is available to you, what support we offer, the um, peer support, the online forums, etc. Uh, we've got guides that you can take to your doctor and actually we will write a letter so that people can download that and take to their doctor when the revised NICE guideline comes out. So we will do everything we can to arm you with the information that you need to get the support that you're entitled to. One of the things that I would want to say is that if you have ME uh, or a parent of a child with ME as I unfortunately have become a, a year after I joined the charity that you aren't alone and that it's um, it is important that you recognize that there are others out there you may feel invisible but there are others out there that we can help connect you with so that at least you can you have somebody you can talk to somebody that understands and somebody that listens and possibly even may have some good tips and advice for you about managing or, or learning to manage your your illness in a way that's that's best for you so do go to our website which is um, www.actionforme.org.uk all of that information is there and you can always pick up the phone and speak to one of our primary support workers and we will do our best to provide the support that you need no that's very well said well look um i'm sure if you're willing we'll have you back on the program at some point again <laughs> Um, but as you said, as Sonia said, everything's on the front page here, um, including obviously how to get in touch with the, the actual Action for ME website, where you can find out how to give them money or how to learn more about them. So thanks ever so much, Sonia. And everybody who's listening, thank you. And if you remember, if you want to give some feedback, there is the SpeakPipe kind of facility on the front page. You just have to click that once. And then you can leave a short voice message and I'll get it as an email. And um, thank you. So other than that, I have a good time until we come back again. And I've got some lovely people lined up and uh, hopefully they will be of interest to you. Thanks again. <laughs>